I next met with Dr. Brad Call to talk about papers from ASH and maybe the most exciting corner of oncology nowadays, chronic lymphocytic leukemia. And to begin, Dr. Call commented on a major study comparing BR to FCR as upfront treatment. This was an important study, I think, from the German CLL study group. They call it the CLL-10 trial, and it was a planned interim analysis, and it's comparing what has long been a standard frontline therapy, FCR, versus one of the new kids on the block for frontline therapy, BR, or bendamustine rituximab. And the trial was specifically designed for patients who are considered fit, and fit is defined as patients having a creatinine clearance better than 70 and this thing called a cumulative illness rating scale score. And this is important because when we talk about the CLL-11 trial, we'll go back to this CIRS score or SIRS score. So to be eligible for the CLL-10 trial, you needed a SIRS score of six or less. It basically just goes through a patient's organ systems. And if they have issues with that organ system, then you apply a number if it's a no problem, a mild problem, a moderate problem, a severe problem, it gets a number, and then you add up the numbers at the end. And that decides whether the patient is, quote, fit or, quote, unfit, which would triage them to one study or the other. So this study was for the fit patients. And it was really a non-inferiority design. So they were really looking to see that the BR therapy would get you results that are in the ballpark of the FCR therapy. That was the goal of the study. So they presented at the meeting, almost 700 patients enrolled. So it's a big study, pretty mature follow-up at this time, 27 months of observation time. And the results are interesting. And here's what it showed. The overall response is identical for both arms, 98%. The complete remission rate, is a little better for FCR compared to BR, 47% versus 38%. And the FCR patients were a little more likely to be MRD negative at the end of the induction therapy. And you started to see some curve separation in the progression-free survival curve. So at two years, 85% of the FCR patients are still in their first remission. 78% of the BR patients are in their first remission. So the FCR looks like it's producing more durable remissions than BR. Now, what's interesting is that in a planned analysis, they stratified the patients by age less than 65 or 65 and older. And this difference, the superiority for the FCR is only true in the younger patients. So if you're 65 or older, there was no difference in the progression-free survival between FCR and BR. What about toxicity? So the FCR was a little more toxic. There was more grade 3-4 heme toxicity, and there were more severe infections with FCR. There was no difference in the overall survival between the two arms. So if you put this all together, my kind of take-home message from this trial is that FCR produces slightly more durable remissions in frontline CLL patients than BR, but that difference is limited to patients under the age of 65. There's no difference in patients over 65. There's no overall survival difference in any population. And to get that PFS benefit, there's kind of a toxicity trade-off. There's somewhat more toxicity with the FCR regimen. So in practice, the way I would handle this is if I have a patient who's 65 or older, I'm just going to tell them, I think BR offers a better risk-benefit profile for you. If I have a younger patient, 
I'm going to explain to them what FCR does for them and what BR does for them and try to make a decision together. Because there's no overall survival difference, some patients might choose the BR regimen because it is less toxic, even though the remissions aren't quite as durable. And that's totally reasonable as long as the patients are informed about that trade-off. Other patients might opt to pick the FCR knowing that it's a little more toxic, but the remissions tend to be a little more durable. In fact, I've had this exact conversation with two patients with CLL who are in their 50s who needed to start on frontline treatment just recently. And so it's not that complicated of a conversation to have with patients. You just need to know this data and explain it to them. And like I said, if it's a younger patient, you can make the decision together. What are your thoughts about why there wasn't a benefit seen in the over 65? Do you think it's an efficacy thing or a toxicity thing? I think it's most likely a toxicity thing. We just see the older patients don't handle the FCR as well. They run into problems with myelosuppression, cumulative myelosuppression. So you end up with more dose reductions, more dose delays, people who can't finish all the planned cycles. So I think you lose efficacy because of toxicity. And what other data do we have to go on right now in terms of this specific question, either randomize or not randomize? Well, I think this is really it right now for this patient population. You know, we've known for several years that FCR was a very effective regimen, but it's not trivial toxicity with FCR. And we've known that for a lot of years. Then BR comes along in the last several years. And the big question was, does BR get your results that are in the ballpark of FCR? It turns out it does. It's in the ballpark, but for the under 65 patients, just slightly inferior. So I found this to be a very useful study that should really help clinicians as they talk to their CLL patients in practice. It's interesting because I think that I've seen a major shift towards BR, both in practice and investigators, you know, before these data even came out. Is that your impression? And is that what's happening in your practice? Yeah, that has been what's happening in my practice. You know, the reality is most of your CLL patients who need treatment are over 65. And so those were already people that I wasn't particularly enthused about giving FCR to. So I was very happy when BR came along. It just was a better option for those patients. And for the younger patients, the people in their 50s, I struggled with the decision of whether to give them BR or FCR. And now I have some data, you know, to guide me and I can talk to those patients about the trade-offs. Where are we right now in terms of upfront trials of CLL? seems like it'd be very tempting to consider looking at some of these small molecules. It is tempting, and actually, I'm sure we'll get to talking about abrutinib here in a few minutes, and the U.S. intergroup system through ECOG has just initiated a frontline trial that's comparing FCR to a combination of abrutinib and rituximab as frontline treatment. Ibrutinib and rituximab versus FCR. That should be interesting to get an informed consent for. <laughs> right. Wow. You think about two different experiences. Yeah, I think it'll be a hard one for patients because the two treatments are very disparate. On the other hand, you know, abrutinib got its FDA approval, great day for CLL patients. But the label reads, it's indicated for people who have failed one line of therapy. So there is no FDA label for frontline use. And I think because the drug is expensive, I think people are going to have a really hard time getting third-party payers to pay for this drug as first-line treatment. So if you're a patient and you want a brutinib frontline, you're probably going to have to get on a clinical trial to get it. 
Yeah, this comes up in so many different tumors nowadays when you have, you know, non-toxic therapies out there that work in advanced disease and you want to... I've had this discussion the last few days about bevidotin in older patients with Hodgkin. I'm trying to think. I think I had the same discussion. TDM1, you know, in breast cancer, which right now you can only give an advanced disease. What about trials? As you say, we'll get into this, but just since you brought it up, what about trials looking at bendamustine plus the small B-cell inhibitors? Right. Yeah, we do have a trial that we're going to talk about in a few minutes. That's very interesting, too. And obviously, all these combinations need to be tested, the chemotherapy plus the kinase inhibitors or other small molecule inhibitors. What's really interesting is, you know, the results look so good for abrutinib in particular. It's possible that the chemotherapy doesn't add much or anything, and it's not worth it to add the chemotherapy to certain small molecule inhibitors. Another thing I want to ask you about, of course, in terms of CLL, was the big plenary meeting presentation on abinutuzumab, and we actually saw the paper get published not long after in the New England Journal. Maybe you can go through that in terms of what was presented, and at this point, you know, how you're thinking it through. Sure. So this particular trial was obviously big news. It was at the ASH plenary session, and it came out in the New England Journal of Medicine in January of 2014. And it's a big deal for several reasons. The trial was for frontline CLL treatment, and the target patient population were these patients who have something that makes them less than ideal candidates for aggressive treatments. These are people who are not considered appropriate for FCR, not appropriate for BR. So to be eligible for this trial, a patient had to have the SIRS score, the cumulative index rating score, greater than six and or a creatinine clearance of less than 70. And this is a pretty typical CLL patient, actually, out there in the real world. So this is a very important trial that will help a lot of clinicians in practice. So the trial was a three-arm study, and it took untreated CLL patients who needed treatment, and they're randomized to one of three arms. One of the arms is plain old chlorambucil, given in a pulse dose fashion every two weeks. One of the arms is chlorambucil plus rituximab. And then the third arm was chlorambucil plus obinutuzumab, which also goes by the name GA101. And so obinutuzumab is a newer anti-CD20 monoclonal antibody. This is the so-called type 2 monoclonal. It has some properties that theoretically make it better than rituximab, at least in model systems. It binds to different CD20 epitope. It's glycoengineered, which means the way they put the sugars on the protein is a little different. So they try to get better ADCC, antibody-dependent cellular cytotoxicity. It's also engineered to have less complement activation. So in theory, it's supposed to give less infusion reactions, although when you see the data, it actually gives more infusion reactions. And then it has increased direct cell death. So, you know, there have been a lot of companies trying to build a better mousetrap for a lot of years, trying to beat rituximab. And this is the first time we've ever seen rituximab beat head-to-head by another anti-CD20 monoclonal. So the I'll call it the G chlorambucil arm, GA101, the G chlorambucil arm, the data from that were presented in comparison to the rituximab chlorambucil arm at the ASH meeting. And it showed that G chlorambucil was superior. It was superior for overall response rate, 78% versus 65%. And it was superior for progression-free survival, 
a median of 26 months versus a median of 15 months. And if you compare the G chlorambucil to plain old chlorambucil, there's actually an overall survival difference, which to my knowledge has never been shown in a CLL trial in this population. So to show an overall survival difference in a frontline CLL trial is hard to do. And that just gives you some sense of the magnitude of the effect. So this was an impressive result. And this was truly an older CLL patient population. You know, the median age was 74. As far as toxicities, somewhat more infusion reactions with the GA101, somewhat more myelosuppression, but this did not translate to any difference in infection risk. So from a safety standpoint, it looked completely acceptable. And I would think that if you're now going to choose chlorambucil for an older CLL patient, you should be adding obinutuzumab or J101, same thing, to the regimen. And actually, obinutuzumab received FDA approval for this exact indication in November of 2013. Do you yourself ever use chlorambucil? I do. Here's kind of a rule of thumb without getting too academic about it. If I have a CLL patient who needs frontline treatment, and let's say they're below the age of 60, my first thought for them is FCR. If I have a CLL patient who needs frontline treatment and they're between the age of, let's say, 60 and 75, which is actually the majority of the patients I see, I think BR. And if I have a CLL patient who needs frontline treatment and they're over 75, my first thought for them is chlorambucil. Now, I don't want to sound too rigid about that. Sometimes you'll have a 59-year-old who is quite old and unhealthy, or sometimes you'll have a 75-year-old that's remarkably healthy. And so, you know, I'll bend those rules around, but that's just sort of a rule of thumb. So if I have elderly patients, sure, I will use chlorambucil as frontline treatment from time to time. And from now on, I will add obinutuzumab to it. What about the patient getting bendamustine, for example? Let's maybe put aside the issue of, you know, reimbursement, just purely looking at, you know, what you think would be best for a patient like that. Let's say they'll pay for whatever you recommend. Would you be comfortable using bendamustine or benetuzumab? That is really, I think, the next big question. Should we be extrapolating the data from this CLL-11 trial and think about combining obinutuzumab with our other therapies like bendamustine or FC. So to help answer that question, presented at the ASH meeting this year was Abstract 523. Jennifer Brown from Dana-Farber presented this. And this is an ongoing phase 1B trial called the Galton trial. And it's looking at the safety and feasibility of combining obinutuzumab with B and with FC. So it's kind of a small study. They presented data on 41 patients, 21 had received FC plus G, and 20 had received B plus G, and they had follow-up up to about 12 months. So as far as the safety signals, again, it looks like there's more infusion reactions with GA101 compared to rituximab. 91% of the patients had significant infusion reactions. There were also, of the 21 FC plus G patients, of those 21 seven had to stop their treatment early due to AEs. And the most common AEs were pretty profound myelosuppression. And a couple of the BG patients had to stop early too. If you look at the results, and it's a real small number, it's unclear whether the efficacy looks any better than, say, FCR or BR. You just can't tell. 
But the safety signal is, it got my attention. So personally, I would not do that right now. I think folks should wait for more data. There's no doubt in my mind that obinutuzumab is more myelosuppressive than rituximab is, and that effect is magnified when you combine it with chemotherapy. I've seen enough data now to convince me of that. And bendamustine is pretty darn myelosuppressive, and FC is very myelosuppressive. So it may turn out that the combination of obinutuzumab and those particular chemotherapy agents is not the best strategy. So I wouldn't do that in practice yet. I think we need more data before we make that extrapolation. Do you think that we're going to see this same benefit when, you know, obinutuzumab is compared to rituximab in lymphomas? Yeah, so far the data with obinutuzumab in lymphoma compared to rituximab in lymphoma, it's not so obvious that obinutuzumab is measurably better than rituximab in lymphomas. There's ongoing studies that will answer these questions definitively in large cell lymphoma and follicular lymphoma, but small studies to date, they're looking roughly equivalent. So there's definitely something, I think there's something different about CLL. My guess is there's more of a direct killing effect of the antibody on the CLL cells, and the antibody by itself just can't overcome the CLL cells apoptotic threshold to be a good killer as a single agent. But when you give it with chemo, the antibody is triggering some intracellular pathways that's lowering the cell's apoptotic threshold. So when you know it's when you combine an anti-CD20 with chemo and CLL, you get a lot of synergy because the antibodies by themselves are not that impressive in CLL. So the antibodies are doing something to intracellular pathways that are making the cells much easier to kill when you then come in with chemotherapy. So let's move on and talk about ibrutinib. You mentioned the fact that it was just FDA approved, and there were several papers presented at ASH I wanted to ask you about. The first abstract 525, looking at a combination of ibrutinib with BR. So this abstract, this was presented by Jennifer Brown at Dana-Farber, combined ibrutinib with the BR regimen for patients with relapse refractory CLL. And again, one of the big questions is, if you combine it with chemotherapy, does it make the ibrutinib better? Does it make the chemotherapy better? Is it synergistic? Is it worth it in terms of whatever toxicities are incurred by these combinations? And there isn't a lot of data for these kinase inhibitors plus chemotherapy yet, so we're all very interested in seeing the efficacy and safety signals as these studies roll out. So here's one example, and they treated 30 patients with relapsed CLL. Patients received the BR regimen for six cycles. Because it was in the relapse setting, they used a lower dose of bendamustine, 70 milligrams per square meter, and then standard doses of rituximab for CLL. And then the abrutinib was given at 420 milligrams orally each day throughout the BR treatment. And then the abrutinib is continued beyond the BR six cycles, and the abrutinib is continued until progressive disease. So what's interesting to me when you look at this is it's hard to tell if the abrutinib plus BR is actually measurably better than abrutinib alone. You know, abrutinib is setting a pretty high bar. So for this cohort of 30 patients, the overall response rate is 93%. The progression-free survival at 12 months is 90%. So these are outstanding results, but if you look at abrutinib alone, it's very close to those two numbers I just quoted. What's different is that you don't get the lymphocytosis. So, you know, if you treat a patient with abrutinib 
a certain fraction of them will be unable to be called responders by traditional criteria because their white count has increased, but by all other measures, they've clinically improved. Their lymph nodes have gotten smaller, their spleen has gotten smaller, their cytopenias have improved. And so these patients are often called a PR with lymphocytosis. So when you factor those patients in, the abrutinib single agent response rates are looking to come in around 80-90%, which is exactly you know, what you saw with this particular combination. So I think that's the big question is, <laughs> is it really worth it to add the BR to the abrutinib at this point? And it's obviously going to take a lot more work to sort that out. How about this abstract 673 looking at ibrutinib alone, but here, as in a number of other studies, specifically the question of with and without deletion 17P? So that's one of the most exciting things about ibrutinib and some of the other small molecule inhibitors, because chemotherapy has been notoriously ineffective in our 17P deletion CLL patients. Very disappointing results, even with BR and FCR. And the data to date would suggest that abrutinib and some of the other kinase inhibitors have unique activity in 17P deleted CLL. So here was a study that had 53 patients, and of that cohort, 24 of them had a normal 17P status, and 29 of them were deleted at 17P. And if you look at six months, the clinical results are very similar when you compare the 17P deleted to the 17P non deleted. For the 17P non-deleted patients, the overall response rate is 81% plus 9% who responded but have the lymphocytosis. So that gets you right at that 90% number that I quoted a minute ago. If you look at the 17P deleted patients and just use traditional response criteria, the response rate at six months is 53%. So you might say, aha, 17P deleted doing much worse. But if you then factor in the patients who have responded but have this lymphocytosis, that's 43%. So if you add the 43 and the 53, you're back over 90% again. So it looks like the 17P deleted patients are more likely to get this prolonged lymphocytosis than the non-17P deleted. The question is clinically, does that really make a difference or does that matter to these patients? And so what will be really interesting will be to follow these patients over time. Now, if you look at the New England Journal of Medicine paper that came out a few months ago, John Bird was the first author. This was where the abrutinib really got front page headlines. This was the 85 patient phase two experience of single agent abrutinib in relapse CLL. The overall response rate, if you count the lymphocytosis again, is 90% for that study. But they have nice mature follow-up, and the two-year progression-free survival for the whole group is 75%. So the vast majority of patients are remaining in remission at two years. But you are starting to see a little bit of drop-off in the progression-free survival curve in the 17P-deleted patients. They're still doing very well, much better than you would expect with chemotherapy, but you are starting to see some separation in the curve suggesting that the 17P-deleted patients are not going to do quite as well as the non-17P-deleted patients, even with abrutinib. You mentioned the fact that when you give chemotherapy with abrutinib, you don't see the lymphocytosis. What's your explanation for that, and how do you conceptualize what's going on with this lymphocytosis? So abrutinib and other B-cell receptor inhibitors, or agents that disrupt that pathway, seem to disrupt some chemokine signaling and 
The disruption in the chemokine signaling takes the CLL cells and it helps get the CLL cells out of their protected microenvironment. So the marrow and the lymph nodes kind of form a protected environment for these cells that make them harder to kill. And if you can get the cells out of that protected environment, they're actually easier to kill. And so abrutinib seems to be, in, for some of the CLL cells, it's sort of a two-step process. Step one is to get the cell out of the marrow or out of the spleen or out of the lymph nodes into the blood where it then can die a slow death. And that's what you see with abrutinib and with PI3 kinase inhibitors is that the lymphocytosis tends to improve over time. It may take several months, but the cells eventually do die off. Why do you think the chemotherapy prevents it? Well, I think the chemotherapy is taking those cells in the peripheral blood that are going to die over the next three months, and it's just killing them instantly. Interesting. The other paper I wanted to ask you about with relationship to ibrutinib is the combination that you were talking about before, ibrutinib-rituximab, a study of 40 patients, abstract 675. Any comments on that? Sure. This is a pretty obvious combination to try because of this lymphocytosis you know, if you're giving somebody a brutinib, a very well-tolerated agent, boy, you'd like to avoid all the toxicities of the cytotoxic chemotherapy, and yet wouldn't it be nice to get rid of that lymphocytosis right away? So why not throw in a monoclonal antibody? So that's exactly what they did in this trial at MD Anderson. 40 patients received this combination of a brutinib and rituximab. The rituximab was given weekly for four doses and then every two months for five more doses, and then a brutinib was given in the standard way. 420 milligrams orally each day. So super impressive results. Overall response rate, 95% for this cohort of 40 patients with relapsed refractory CLL, pretty high risk group, I might add. At 18 months, progression-free survival is 78%. So again, phenomenal result, 80% of patients holding the remission at 18 months. And so from this paper, my conclusion is that that lymphocytosis, if you add in another agent like rituximab, resolves a lot more quickly than if you just give a brutinib alone. I think the real question is, does that translate to some sort of clinically meaningful advantage for the patient? In other words, is it really beneficial for the patient to get rid of those circulating lymphocytes immediately versus letting them die off more slowly over the next couple of months, which is what's happening with a brutinib? We just don't know the answer to that yet. Frankly, it will take randomized trials of a brutinib versus you know, abrutinib-rituximab or abrutinib-GA101 to answer that question and find out if adding the monoclonal is making a meaningful difference for patients. So I want to ask you about another B-cell inhibitor, adalalesib, and there was a big phase three study presented and also published in the New England Journal. I'm kind of wondering why it's not approved in a way. I mean, I assume it's being looked at but maybe ibrutinib is somehow gathering all the attention. I'm not sure exactly, but maybe you can talk about this paper, Adele Lesseb, in general in terms of what it is and where you see things heading with it. Sure. So Adele Lesseb is another really interesting, promising drug for CLL. It's a PI3 kinase inhibitor, so it's targeting a kinase in the B-cell receptor pathway that then signals through AKT and then through mTOR, so this is a well-described pathway that's prominent in lots of B-cell malignancies and other malignancies. Idelalisib is a really potent inhibitor of PI3 kinase, 
specifically the delta isoforms. So there's different isoforms for PI3 kinase that have different biologic roles. For example, alpha is important in insulin signaling. And so by being selective for delta, you avoid issues with blood sugars and things like that. So it turned out it's good to be a selective PI3 kinase inhibitor. And there's a strong signal in CLL from a phase one study that has just been accepted for publication in blood. From the phase one experience, we knew that idelalisib produced an overall response rate of over 70% with a median progression-free survival of 16 months. So very impressive results in a phase one. So given that, the makers of idelalisib wanted to develop a study that presumably would get it a registration strategy or registration pathway, I should say. And so they devised a study in which they took patients with relapsed refractory CLL and these patients were considered not suitable for chemotherapy. So the criteria that they used to make this determination was a reduced creatinine clearance of less than 60, or patients with chronically low blood counts from prior therapies, or patients with certain comorbidities. So if they had a cumulative illness rating score greater than six, if a patient had any one of those things, they would be eligible for this trial. So in this particular trial, it was a randomized study, 220 patients, and the randomized Everybody receives rituximab. They receive eight doses over six months. And then patients either receive idelalisib at 150 milligrams BID until disease progression or placebo until disease progression. So this was an older group of patients and it's certainly a less fit group of patients. Median age was 71. So the difference in outcomes was pretty enormous. Rituximab Idelalisib overall response rate, 81%. Rituximab placebo, overall response rate, 13%. Median progression-free survival for rituximab idelalisib not reached. Median progression-free survival for rituximab placebo, five months. And there's actually an overall survival difference between the two arms, 92% versus 80% at one year. So huge difference in outcomes in this particular trial. I guess the question you raised, Neil, is will this lead to FDA approval? I would assume so, although I don't know. Rituximab as a single agent is sort of a notoriously ineffective you know, regimen for this patient population. So they kind of beat up on the weak kid on the block, so to speak, to get this result. And so I honestly don't know how impressed the FDA will be by this particular data set because of the you know, the agent they chose as the comparator. I think the case they'll have to make to the FDA is that these patients really were infirm, really were not candidates for any kind of other therapies. And if they can successfully make that case, then I think they'll have a chance. Although, you know, with the approval of ibrutinib yesterday, presumably every one of the patients that went on this trial would be a fine candidate for ibrutinib. And so given that, given the rapidly changing landscape, you know, maybe the bar will be harder to get approval for idelalisib. That's an interesting regulatory issue. I guess, you know, we probably don't have any or many patients who progressed on ibrutinib to see if they respond to idelalisib. Have there been patients like that? There have. I just don't know what the data looks like yet. But... I think the more common scenario, because actually idelalisib was developed a little ahead of ibrutinib. It's been around a couple of more years. There has to be some idelalisib failures who have moved on to ibrutinib. 
And at this point, the converse is probably true also, abrutinib failures who have moved on to idelalisib, but I have yet to see any data telling me what response rates look like in those scenarios. And it kind of also raises the question of what does it take to get a drug approved, and should it be different when you look at a single agent, non-toxic, relatively non-toxic biologic than when you're, you know, other kinds of studies. I, you know, we were talking over the weekend, we had a lung cancer meeting and some of the second generation ALK and EGFR inhibitors where, you know, just in straightforward phase two trials, you see people having incredible responses. I mean, the same thing's been observed with Adelesib. We know that it causes responses in CLL and other tumors. And, you know, again, it gets into this, do you really need a phase three trial with survival benefit to want to use it? I agree. In my mind, if you have a patient with a incurable illness like CLL or any indolent lymphoma, really, where there's a continuing pattern of relapse, patients need more options. You need more choices. You need more tools in the toolbox, as I say. And so if you have an agent that shows a really respectable response rate and the toxicity profile is clearly favorable for patients, in my opinion, you know, that ought to be enough. So we've already talked about a new anti-CD20. We've talked about two small molecules. And I'm going to ask you in a second how you see all this coming together in terms of trial design moving forward. But first, let's bring in the fourth agent. And you are very much involved with this, the BCL2 inhibitor ABT199. And there was a paper at ASH also that you were a co-author on looking at this in terms of monotherapy. Can you talk about what you all reported? Sure. So ABT199 is an oral small molecule BCL2 inhibitor. BCL2 is a protein that's overexpressed in lots of lymphoid malignancies, and BCL2 overexpression raises the cellular apoptotic threshold and makes the cells harder to kill, frankly. So if you can lower BCL2 in cells, they're more willing to die. The problem with prior BCL2 inhibitors had been delivery into the cell with like antisense molecules or with previous versions of small molecule inhibitors. There were problems with thrombocytopenia because there was some targeting of BCL XL, which would lower platelet counts. But this particular version of the BCL2 inhibitor, ABT199, has overcome the thrombocytopenia problem. It's orally available. It's very well absorbed. And this is an incredibly exciting agent. It's still in phase one, but there are a variety of studies now moving beyond phase one. But presented at the ASH meeting was the ongoing phase one experience. And there were 56 patients that were reported on at the meeting. And they've been exposed to a lot of different doses in this ongoing study, ranging from 150 milligrams a day up to 1,200 milligrams a day. The main issue with this drug is it it almost has worked too well in instances, and there were problems or there were issues with tumor lysis syndrome. And in this particular study, there was actually one death in a patient as he was escalated from, I think it was 900 milligrams a day to 1,200 milligrams a day. And so the study had to be put on hold for a few months and redesigned with very close monitoring. Patients really have to start out at a low dose and undergo a very carefully monitored dose escalation that takes four to six weeks to get them up to the target dose. So they might start out at like 50 milligrams a day and then 100 milligrams a day. You do that for a week and then 200 milligrams a day until you get up. And now the target dose is 400 milligrams a day for CLL and they've capped it there. So the tumor lysis syndrome is, it's a real issue. 
It's totally manageable if you're paying attention, but what's really amazing about this drug is the efficacy. It's early, but so far this drug looks every bit as good as abrutinib, and abrutinib is the best drug we've ever seen in CLL. Abrutinib is a game changer, and I think we're sitting on another agent that's going to be just as good. So in this particular phase one study, the overall response rate is 84%. It's right in the abrutinib ballpark. Responses are just as prominent, even in 17P deleted CLL. Responses are just as prominent in fludarabine refractory disease. And I can tell you from personal experience, the agent is extremely well tolerated. We do not see a lot of serious adverse effects. A little bit of diarrhea for some patients that's very manageable, a little bit of fatigue that's quite mild. It's a very well tolerated agent. So I'm incredibly optimistic about ABT199 and CLL. So we're going to talk about some other new therapies, but just taking a pause right now, if you just think about, again, ibrutinib and the BTK inhibitors, adelalesib and agents in that class, PI3 kinase, and now the ABT199, I'm sure there must be a lot of discussions about and Some of this maybe is outside of the hands of you know some of the investigators in terms of being industry-driven, but theoretically, how would you like to see these drugs put together? Well... That is a good question. I think, you know, to me, a really obvious combination would be ibrutinib and ABT199. And as soon as somebody works out the dosing and the safety in a relapsed refractory population, then I think it should go right to frontline. Now it's possible that the two drugs together is no better than either drug by itself. That certainly could be true, but the combination... Or sequentially. Or sequentially. But the combination should be tested. But... You know, the results with ibrutinib and what I'm seeing with ABT199, I think they look so good. It would not surprise me if these things end up being more efficacious, you know, than standard frontline regimens that we've been using for years, like BR, and more efficacious than things like FCR. Obviously, you have to do those experiments and you have to prove that, but I can see that happening. I could see ibrutinib being a better frontline choice for patients than FCR. I could see ABT199 being a better frontline choice. Fortunately, it's going to take a while, and you have to prove that. But what we have right now are some really outstanding options for relapsed refractory CLL that we didn't have two years ago. I mean, it's totally different in the clinic when you're talking to a CLL patient nowadays. What do we know in terms of CLL, in terms of trying to drive the initial disease burden down maximally? We've always had this sort of palliative model, you know, we don't treat patients with early disease. But is there any evidence, for example, from the lab that if you, you know, drive the disease burden down low enough, you can maybe see more prolonged survival, even cure? No evidence for cure, but certainly from all the trials, the better quality you can make the remission, which you can define as MRD negative, patients who become MRD negative will enjoy longer remissions than patients who fail to become MRD negative. So there is a reason to try to get the best quality remission you can. Now in the past, there was a huge toxicity trade-off because you had to intensify the chemotherapy to do that and it wasn't always worth it. But now I think you could think about this totally differently because I think you could shoot for a really high CR rate, a really high MRD negative rate, you know, without piling all this toxicity on the backs of patients. 
So I wanted to get your take on several data sets presented at ASH looking at CAR, chimeric antigen receptor therapy. First of all, can you just talk a little bit about your own way you think about what this therapy is, how it was developed, and what exactly is involved? Sure. You know, I don't have any personal experience with this therapy, so I can only talk from the standpoint of an outside observer, but it's immunotherapy. And the strategy here is to take patients who have a B-cell malignancy, in this case CLL, and you take T-cells out of the patient and you infect them with a lentivirus vector, which gets these T-cells to express what's called a chimeric antigen receptor. And this receptor is targeting CD19. And CD19 is a protein that's pretty ubiquitous on mature B-cells. And so then you expand the T-cell population in the lab, and then you infuse the T-cells back into the patient. So now you've taken out their own T-cells, you've tricked them into expressing an antigen that will target B-cells, or a receptor that will target B-cells. You put them back in the patient, and then you hope that these T-cells go do what T-cells do and go kill the CD19-expressing B-cells of which CLL is a CD19 expressing B cell. And so it's an immunotherapy technique that has been explored at a lot of centers, City of Hope, Memorial Sloan Kettering, Fred Hutchinson. But the most promising data to date for this particular patient population has come from the University of Pennsylvania. And this work was really pioneered by Carl June. So at the ASH meeting this year, they presented two updates of ongoing studies at the University of Pennsylvania One is long-term follow-up of a pilot study. This is the same cohort of patients that was initially presented in the New England Journal of Medicine just a couple of years ago. And so they'll take patients with, you know, relapsed refractory CLL. They'll do this development of this chimeric antigen. They want to lymphodeplete the patients before infusing the T-cells back in, so they'll give them some amount of chemotherapy, either fludarabine cyclophosphamide, pentastatin cyclophosphamide, or bendamustine, then they infuse these CART cells, and then they see what happens. So in the long-term follow-up information that they present at the meeting, they have a 14-patient cohort. Of those 14 patients, they have eight responders, three patients achieved a complete remission, five patients achieved a partial remission. Of the three complete remission patients, all responses are ongoing, One is at 11 months, one's at 34 months, and one is at 35 months. There are some unique toxicities with this approach. They get something called cytokine release syndrome, and that can be severe. It tends to peak when the T-cell expansion peaks inside the patient, and if it's severe enough, they'll have to intervene with steroids or an anti-IL-6 monoclonal antibody. Patients will feel nausea, anorexia, myalgias. They've even had hypotension and hypoxia, so maybe like really bad influenza. But of their six long-term responders in that original 14-patient cohort, those six patients still have these CART T-cells, these cells with this chimeric antigen circulating inside the patients. The patients also have prolonged B-cell aplasia. I mean, these CART cells take out all of your B-cells, malignant and healthy. So what I'm particularly interested in seeing is what happens to these patients in the long run. Do these patients start to develop a new set of problems? because they have no B-cells, and these CART T-cells are going to take out their B-cells very prominently, even the healthy ones. So it's a very interesting strategy. 
I can tell you my patients ask about this strategy all the time. They've gotten a lot of press about this. And it's, you know, it's a way to try to trick your immune system into fighting your cancer, which is very intellectually appealing for patients. You know, it's a little bit of a cumbersome procedure. It takes weeks or months, I think, to get the product all lined up for the patients. And it's kind of a boutique approach. You know, will this be exportable to other places that don't have this kind of capability? These are all the questions that I think remain with this CART therapy, which is promising, but I see some challenges in kind of developing this and making it exportable. Well, plus it's coming about at the same time that all these other agents are coming about. Yeah, I think that's the biggest thing. You know, if you didn't have ibrutinib and you didn't have idelalisib and you didn't have ABT199, this would be the greatest thing on the block. But with the landscape changing so rapidly and with these highly active oral agents, you know, I wonder where the role for this kind of a semi-cumbersome therapy will, you know, where it'll all shake out. The group from Pennsylvania also reported on one small study in which they're just trying to refine the dose of the CART cells that they infused. And they tested two different doses of these CART cells, and the lower dose was a log fewer cells than the higher dose. They've enrolled 18 patients to date. They've had seven responders. And there's no difference between the high dose of the CART cells and the low dose. And so what they might learn from this study is they can use a lower dose than they thought. They still are having some issues with this cytokine release syndrome. Six of the seven responding patients did develop this cytokine release syndrome. And I think three of them had to be treated with this anti-IL-6 monoclonal antibody. And one patient developed hemophagocytosis, which is a little bit scary, otherwise known as macrophage activation syndrome. And that can be a real challenge. So... I would say this treatment is not for beginners, and they just need to keep working on it and refine it. Any other papers that came out in CLL and at ASH or anything else that's going on in CLL that you want to comment on? The only other one that I kind of looked at and prepared a little bit on was this abstract 528, which was ofatumumab chlorambicil versus chlorambicil. But you know, if we hadn't talked about that plenary study, this would be really interesting, but this isn't quite as interesting. Why don't we talk about it, though? I see that listed here. Yeah, maybe we can finish out with that one. Okay. So this was results of a randomized phase three trial, international phase three trial. It was looking at combining the novel anti-CD20 monoclonal ofatumumab. Ofatumumab is a anti-CD20 that has a approval for relapsed refractory CLL. And this was a trial for frontline CLL, again, for older patients who aren't candidates for intensive therapies. And the trial was chlorambicil versus ofatumumab chlorambicil. And the trial enrolled almost 450 patients, median age of 69. And what it showed, not totally surprisingly, was that the addition of the monoclonal was better than chemotherapy alone. So if you just look at the median progression-free survival, 13 months in the chlorambicil arm, 22 months in ofatumumab chlorambicil arm without really any appreciable differences in toxicity. So pretty good indication that adding the ofatumumab to the chlorambicil makes the chlorambicil better. Now, the question with this study is, we already knew we could do that with rituximab. So is this measurably better than rituximab? You can't tell. And then, unfortunately for these investigators, the bar suddenly was moved again because of the favorable results with obinutuzumab. So you just can't tell from this data set whether ofatumumab chlorambicil is going to be comparable to, say, obinutuzumab chlorambicil. Unfortunately, there's just no way to tell.